Life's too short for crap marketing. The Got Marketing Podcast is for marketers, business owners, and entrepreneurs who want marketing that's fun, accessible, and meaningful. Join me, Mia Feilman, for inspired chats with my favorite marketing insiders about marketing that works, campaigns that inspire, and the fads, fakery, and false profits to avoid. Hello, friend. On this show, I talk a lot about online business because that's the game that I'm in now. But I actually spent a decade in fast-moving consumer goods. And now we're starting to find that quite a few brand managers from FMCG are joining my program. So I thought we should do a dedicated episode just on fast-moving consumer goods marketing. And so I've invited a fellow FMCG escapee, Melissa Packham, on the show today to talk about this and also my weird love of supermarkets. It's all about trends. It's all about data. And all of that feeds long-term decision-making. Marketing in FMCG, it's about where's the opportunity? What's the size of the prize? How do you value that up? Where are we going to make it? And then what agencies do we need to engage to support us? Because the marketing doesn't happen in-house. That was Melissa Packham, a brand-centered strategist who leverages two decades of marketing experience to guide businesses in finding clarity, making agile decisions, and building standout brands sustainably and ethically. Her business is brand-led business, and she helps SMEs create brands that aren't business as usual with purpose-directed strategy and a systems approach. Welcome back for the third time to the Gut Marketing Show. Thank you so much. I can't believe it's time number three. Well, I mean, your episodes with me are our most listened to. Oh, no, you're joking, right? Is that serious? I am not joking. The data does not lie. The data don't lie. Numbers don't lie. Wow, I feel so privileged. That's amazing. Wow. We did the very first episode and this is not going to be the first <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> wow. All right. Let's dive in, shall we? Um, what is FMCG? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it certainly helps when you get into a room and you can drop the brands that you work on because everybody everywhere knows FMCG. So fast-moving consumer goods, basically anything that's on a shelf or in a fridge in a supermarket. <laughs> so um, there's a lot of them and um, a lot of great brands in Australia that um, both of us have had the privilege to work for. So yeah, that's, that's FMCG. So take take us through your FMCG background and then I'll do mine just for context and a bit of backstory. Yeah, sure. So I, I joined uh, Parmalat Australia, which is now called Lactalise Australia, which is a huge dairy company. Um, they were one of the few FMCG companies headquartered in Brisbane at the time. So this is the early 2000s or sort of mid 2000s. I joined them and just like got in before I finished uni, started climbing that corporate ladder through the marketing department. So a lot of change in that time, but basically working through being a brand manager up to marketing manager. And when I moved to Sydney, I I sort of discovered there's so many more FMCG (laughs) headquarters down there. And so the world was my oyster and um, I was very privileged then to jump across to Campbell Arnott's at the time. So I started off in the Arnott's uh, brand side of things and then moved across to the Campbell's suit portfolio after that. So yeah, 12 years all up in FMCG. Wow, that's so similar to mine. (laughs) I started 
while I was at uni for a dairy company (laughs) called Black Swan Dips, which is a family-owned business. And I did several years at Black Swan. And when I graduated from uni, I was very fortunate to then be offered a position at Kraft, working on the Vegemite and peanut butter brand. And then I went across to France and I worked for BIC, which is also a FMCG brand, pens, razors and uh, lighters. And then I came home and I worked for Maybelline New York, which was a grocery brand, also in Priceline department stores, but predominantly we were in Coles and Woolies. And so my sum total FMCG experience, it's at about 11 years. <laughs> so close. <laughs> it's amazing, actually. Yeah, you, you've definitely got more brands under your belt, I'd say. You probably just spent longer with those brands than I did. Just heaps of, like, long time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today I want to talk about the difference between marketing fast-moving consumer good brands and other industries, e-commerce, service brands. Like, how do you market an FMCG brand? (laughs) With lots of data and lots of insights at your fingertips, almost too much. And and I'm talking, you know, I've been out of that game since 2016, so quite a while now. It would be even more more data that you have access to now. But basically, it's it's all about trends, it's all about data, and all of that feeds long-term decision-making lots of business cases. So, you know, when you're marketing in FMCG, it's about where the, where's the opportunity? What's the size of the prize? How do you value that up? Where are we going to make it? Who's going to make it? <laughs> and, then, and then what agencies do we need to engage to support us? Because the marketing doesn't happen in-house. That all happens outside. So stakeholder engagement. So a lot of it is project management, engaging with departments, being able to be the translator and talk about the differences and engage the operations team who are going to actually physically make the product, the sales team to go out and sell the product, and then even fronting up to retailers and going to buyer meetings and and having those sort of top-line discussions. So it's such a broad role in FMCG marketing, and that's before you even get to the marketing part. (laughs) Like, that's not even the marketing. And then, you know, when you execute a campaign, it's about, you know, watching those numbers, watching the sales on a weekly basis, being able to monitor what's going on, you know, which stores are performing, which products are performing, is your activation working, you know, is the point of sale getting put up in store? It's it's everything. <laughs> is that the answer that you were looking for? Yeah. <laughs> Such a broad one. Oh, absolutely. Did you also, for years after leaving FMCG, have dreams about AC Nielsen ScanTrack reports? A hundred percent. And it took like... <laughs> Every time I thought I had the hang of that database, and I would do an update and I'd have to relearn it. Yeah, it's terrifying. (laughs) So this is so interesting, right? Because I don't think any other category has this. But AC Nielsen, the, the research company, literally sells a product to consumer good brands where it tracks every scanned sales. So I can see how many red lipsticks my competitor sold at Woolworths Katara last week. Mm. Like that kind of level of data for my competitors as well as myself Mm. by store, by SKU Mm. is like next level data, which is why brand managers, they just swim in the data. 
Go gaga for data. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and it's a big shock, isn't it, when you get out of that world and you don't have access to the same data that you, you have to kind of find other ways to access that data or put other pieces of data together and make a lot of um, intellectual assumptions. But yeah, not having that at your fingertips is quite a challenge, uh, especially in the online business world. So what we what we have in sort of that digital insights and, you know, social media insights, it's lacking in terms of that follow through sometimes. Yeah, I found that really challenging. After I left Maybelline, I went to an agency and we were still working with a lot of consumer good brands like Chupa Chups, but they weren't giving us that data. That's proprietary data. And I was like, please <laughs> tell me something I can build a campaign on, <laughs> please. Yeah. And there's some really scary, like the crossover of data. So you think about not only the scan data, but the, the data that you get from loyalty programs like flybys and everyday rewards is you can cross correlate that. So suddenly you know that the person that buys the pizza on a Thursday night also watches Netflix and subscribes to Foxtel and uses their NAB card to buy other things. And there's that super, you know, mega data kind of scariness that goes on and it gets, you can get lost in it. Um, but the insights that you can create and uh, hypotheses that you can build to then test are incredible. Yeah. You made such a good point earlier, though, about the fact that because of all that data and the insights and the stakeholders, you know, if you are a fast-moving consumer goods company, you are liaising with a manufacturer, whether that's in Australia or offshore. So, like, you know, at Black Swan, we had a factory in Australia and in Maybelline, we have factories all over the world that we would be liaising with. And then you're working with a sales team to put together trade presentations to go into Woolworths and make a case to get more ranging or so forth. And when I went and resigned, my boss said to me, why are you leaving? And I'm like, it's May and I have not done any brand marketing, mm. no marketing. <laughs> I have crunched data. I've spoken at the annual conference. I wrote presentations for the sales team. I liaised with the factory, but I have not advocated for this brand once this year and it's May. Mm. And then you run into the challenge of the agencies that you work with. Some like agencies are freaking amazing. They are amazing, intelligent people, but that sometimes the dynamic can shift where the brand custodianship suddenly leaves the brand and sits with the agency who have most of the strategic thinking done on the brand and, and can influence at a top level. So, you know, if, if you're thinking like baby brand manager kind of level, there's very little influence that can happen when your agency is talking straight to your general manager of marketing and you lose that ability to maintain that custodianship, which I always struggled with. And in fact, it got me into a couple of fights with agencies on occasion when, you know, it was like, well, actually my KPI is, is the profitability and the bottom line of this brand. And so it is actually resting with me in, this, in terms of this decision. So let's not forget <laughs> where the roles and responsibilities kind of end just so that that line doesn't get blurred. And I'm all for like bringing the team, like there's a compiled team of experts on this, but I always struggled with losing that agency to my agency, really. <laughs> I felt exactly the same way. I felt like the agency was having all the fun. Mm, mm. They were doing all the big picture creative work, 
but they didn't know what I knew in terms of data because we kept that really close to our chest. They weren't having discussions with retailers. They weren't meeting customers on the ground. Like when I was the senior brand manager of Maybelline New York, I would go to all the events that we sponsored, you know, um, festivals and parties and like little makeup booths. And I would actually be watching and observing my target audience in their natural habitat. My agency never did that. (laughs) And so why are they entrusted to come up with the creative strategy? Meanwhile, I just have to write the brief. Yeah. And let's not diminish the importance of writing a really epic brief. That is a skill set. It is a long-term acquired skill and deserves time and effort and, and collaboration. But exactly right. If you if we're the ones inputting the information into that brief to create, you know, a, a robust piece that can get a, a creative outcome that's actually going to to move the dial, then it, yeah, we deserve some sort of credit at the table for that. But you're right, you know, when you get to your your experience in terms of hands on the ground is a little bit different to mine. My, I was like stacking milk shelves and you know working, doing relays in the planogram, and the planogram, new planograms, and being there, kind of going, okay, I'm stacking a milk shelf, and I and like secretly watching people shopping the category at the same time. So yeah, a little bit less sexy, a lot more smelly because um yeah, the the milk shelves are not a great spot, but um. But certainly, like that hands-on experience, you can't you can't put that in a brief that you know that gets appreciated, and and that actually helps get better strategic outcomes, right? Th- that knowledge, the data, you know, being on the ground, getting up out there with your sales reps, and you know, understanding what's happening in the market is crucial. Got marketing is brought to you by Campaign Del Mar, a marketing education platform for marketers and entrepreneurs. Learn practical, repeatable, and actionable steps to market with confidence. Nail your email marketing strategy or join Campaign Classroom and learn to create memorable and effective marketing campaigns. These are not the kind of online programs where you are left floundering, unsure how to put theory into practice, nor will these programs sit unfinished for months. You can expect hands-on, tailored advice, accountability, and a supportive community, and you will walk away with lifelong marketing skills. Learn more at campaigndelmar.com. Okay, two things I want to pick up on. First, let's talk about how the creative process works because it is so bizarre. So the brand manager writes the brief, and then like the marketing manager will review the brief, but usually it's like, yeah, send it over to the agency, then the agency may or may not come back with questions, usually not. And then you don't hear from them until they have exactly three ideas to pitch back to you. Yeah, always three. It's always three. And like, there is no collaboration, right? It is literally, they go underground in their agency and they do all these cool brainstorm sessions with blackboards and like, trendy Gen Zs and, you know, like pizza, late night pizza deliveries. And then they come back X number of weeks later and they pitch exactly three ideas to you and you get to pick one. And then that's how you work with an agency. Yeah. Yeah. 
meantime, holding on and, and hoping for dear life that they come back with something that you can use because there's usually a very short time frame and probably, or if there's long time frame, it's because you've got about 60,000 stakeholders internally to engage, including your local team and possibly your overseas head office team to make sure that they're on board with that. I love how short your approval process sounded in terms of the brief. That was certainly <laughs> not my experience at right. all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Way longer, many more um, stakeholders involved and months and months and months of getting it right and, and potentially research to get it right. So um, that, that was my experience <laughs> in getting the brief, which shows the importance of getting it right possibly a bit of overkill but yeah it really it it kind of kills the process a little bit like if you you come out the end of that and you get to the campaign finally it's kind of like oh okay I've already been here for in my head for months already <laughs> so let's just get it done now yeah I mean that like there was a lot leading up to the brief and then actually like pulling together the brief after having done the research and having spoken to different millions of stakeholders then it was my job to literally put it in on pen on paper. The second thing I want to talk about is the planogram. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. What is a planogram? Okay. So every twice a year, Coles and Woolies will change the shelving. Like the, they will change what products sit where on the shelf. Okay. And that is then issued as a, as a planogram. And then Brand representatives from the brand need to go into all the supermarkets and they need to follow this ridiculous looking document and they need to literally move products and shelving to meet the new designed structure. So I would go in there for, for dips and for mascaras and I would be like, all right, Chris's dips have five facings on the top shelf. So I go and put those in and I put the tickets in and then it's like, and then Yumi's Dips has another three facings on the top shelf. And then I go to the middle shelf and the bottom shelf and then the well and my hands would have frozen at this point. Completely, yeah. (laughs) Completely. And you are there four hours and it's often very early in the morning and you are literally just basically moving everything around and then you look at the products and you're like, oh, poor, poor mates. They've just been deleted. Yeah. They're out. They've been deleted. <laughs> Sorry, no, no presents for you anymore. Yes, yes. yes. And, yes. And, and all the, the research that goes in behind that. So there are some, you know, FMCG teams that have whole teams dedicated to the science behind where the product sits on the shelf and how it fits on the shelf, but also how that sways consumer behavior when they see or shopper behavior, I should say, as they're, as they're moving through the aisles and, and how, you know, at that prime position is the one that you're going after. Um, but if you have a poor brand that doesn't have the budget for that, then you've got you've to make, make good with what you've got, which informs packaging design, which is a whole other element of, of a, you know, FMCG marketing experience. Yes. The four Ps are done really well, don't you reckon? In, yes. In FMCG? Yes, yes, we should definitely talk about that. <laughs> just before we get to that, I just want to talk about the trends that you think are driving fast-moving consumer goods post-pandemic. How much time have we got for this? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I mean, what an interesting time post-pandemic. And, you know, we've come out of that in inverted commas and and we've got um, a whole suite of, you know, social issues and climate change and all the things. But we also got, you know, the classics, the never never leaving the, the trend list like personalisation and commoditization and the growth of private label and, you know, e-commerce, all those kind of things are coming into it. So there's a lot. Um, some have been on, on the trend list for over a decade. So they're certainly macro. <laughs> and the others are just like peeking their head over going, oh, hey, by the way, <laughs> climate change is here, sustainability is important and all those kind of interesting dynamics. And it's hard being in that position as a brand manager to kind of navigate which one is going to impact my brand in the short term versus the long term, i.e. what's my responsibility while I'm in the seat for this brand and how can I um, ensure that I'm setting the brand up for success in the long term at the same time. I think at a micro level, there's some that we can talk about that are, I think, really interesting. So when I was in fast-moving consumer goods, there was not a vegan product to be found mm-hmm. unless it was a vegetable. Mm-hmm. But now there is like <laughs> an entire bay, an entire bay in the supermarket dedicated to vegan products. Vegan cheese specifically is that's massive now. And the brands that are getting ranged are the ones that are vegan. And we're seeing that across lots of different categories, dips, spreads, yogurts, like all Mm. sorts of categories. Kombucha. I mean, you do not need to go back too long to kombucha was just something that you would have at some like woo-woo market in the Sunshine Coast. (laughs) It smelt and looked funky. As funky as a name. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) It was like Birkenstocks and (laughs) like... um, Dreadlocks, yeah. Dreadlocks, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And now kombucha has its own dedicated space in chilled beverages. It has shelf in the same aisle as Coke and the soft drinks in the non-refrigerated, and it has prime positioning at the checkout next to the Mount Franklin bottled water and the, you know, the 300 mil Coke grab and go, like that convenience section. There is kombucha in there now. Like that is how big a trend it is. Mm, and and that also this sort of hints to the pay to play. So to get those prime positions, um, organisations have to pay a lot of money to to get there, um, as part of that. You know, making sure that they've got those positions. So yes to the trend and the um, proliferation of the beverage space. It's certainly not uh, soft drinks, juice, and flavoured milk like it was back in the day. But yes, it does talk to that. You know, the trends that warrant um, the investment will get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. There's more to this chat. Play the next episode to hear the rest of the conversation.